This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. In 400 AD, St. Augustine first described the phenomenon of false memoria, or false memory. He attributed this to what he termed deceitful spirits. And it wasn't really until the 1840s that this was brought into the medical sphere for consideration by Arthur Ladrock Wigan, who described it as the sentiment of pre-existence. The philosopher Emile Boirac in 1876 wrote a letter in which he referred to la sensation de déjà vu. Twenty years later, the term déjà vu was recognized by the scientific community when French neurologist François-Léon Arnaud presented the case of an amnesiac patient who could not remember anything that had happened to him, but remembered everything that had not. My guest today is a professor at the University of Westminster, specializing inter alia in the neuropsychology of memory. She's an active member of the BPS and a member of its research board. She's the author of The Secret World of the Brain and frequently appears as an expert on BBC Radio 4's All in the Mind, as well as many other radio and television programs. Welcome to the bunker, Professor Catherine Loveday. Thank you very much for having me. Catherine Let's start with a big, easy one. What is déjà vu? Is there a basic accepted definition? Yeah, so it's the kind of conflict you feel when you know that you don't recognise something, but you feel that you must. In its normal presentation, it's a fleeting feeling of nostalgia and familiarity for a situation that you know you can't have experienced before. So it's it's an unusual and slightly sometimes uncomfortable and sometimes pleasant feeling, but it's it's fleeting and that's the key thing. Right. Is there only one kind of déjà vu or other distinct subcategories? So there's, there is a, the sort of normal, typical déjà vu, which can occur in different forms. So it can be a feeling of having seen something before, it can be a feeling of having heard something before, but there's also pathological déjà vu, which occurs in people, as in your first introduction, people who, for example, have amnesia and also people have epilepsy. So they will experience déjà vu differently to the way that we experience it in day-to-day life normally. So with, with someone who has amnesia, their, their déjà vu can be really intense and it can be quite consistent. So, for example, there are people who continually believe that they have watched something on television, so they can't ever sit down and watch the television without <laughs> feeling that they've seen it before, which is it becomes really quite exhausting for them. Mm. Um, And I I worked with a patient who had this for music. So every single time she heard a piece of music, literally the minute it started, she would say she'd heard it before she knew it. Oh, my goodness. And and she always thought it was Elvis. (laughs) But how much joy that robs one in everyday life Mm. of. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have people who have epilepsy and because of the, the brain activity, it can trigger this sense of deja vu 
just when people are walking down the street, but it's it's different from the way we experience it in that it's very prolonged and it will often also be associated with other sensations, so feelings of fear or um, strange sort of internal physiological sensations. So mm. it doesn't tend to be, again, it's, it's not like the way that we experience it. And again, it can be quite debilitating because mm. we kind of use that feeling of familiarity and recollection to help us find our way in the world. So when that yeah. goes wrong, it can be quite disturbing. Yeah, you you cease to trust entirely yeah. your own mind. Catherine, is the spread of it roughly equal or are some categories of people more prone to it? What, what I mean is gender-wise, race-wise, age-wise, is it something that happens fairly broadly, roughly the same to everyone? Or are there some categories of people who are more, more prone to it? Yeah, so I don't know the data on things like ethnicity and culture, but I do know that age is quite a significant factor. So mm. people sort of in their 20s will likely, on average, experience deja vu maybe once a month. But as people get older, that becomes much less frequent. So people in their kind of 60s, 70s might only experience it, say, once a year. So it does tend to drop off. And this is quite interesting because it helps us in some ways in terms of trying to understand what's going on and what the theories are hmm. um, because one of the really difficult things with deja vu is actually really really hard to measure we can ask people how often it's happened to them and what it feels like and when did it last happen and, and can you describe it but to try and actually make people have a deja vu moment is, is quite hard i mean people mm. have done it and, and there are experimental ways to try and do it but we, it's not a guaranteed thing it's not like measuring other aspects of psychological experience so in that, there's almost the implication that in the same way that allergies are a sign of an overactive immune response, maybe déjà vu is, is a sign of a sort of very healthy memory process rather than the other way around. Yeah, that's certainly one One of the theories has been that it, it's a very healthy monitoring system and it's a very active monitoring system. And, and some researchers have even suggested that, you know, we should see it's a good sign and it's a good sign that our, our memory system is working well. There's some other interesting things, like, for example, it tends to happen more when people have drunk alcohol, which is an interesting, an interesting mm. finding, and also when people travel. Wow. Interesting. We will come to the theories of why it happens. But have we managed to, as it were, look under the bonnet and find a technical explanation of how it happens, a sort of neurological mapping of what different areas of the brain fire at that moment? Yeah. So again, because it's quite hard to actually create in, in a laboratory system. So we, we can put somebody in a scanner, but we've got to make them experience deja vu or we've got to try and somehow follow them around. It's a really, really hard thing to measure. It's so fleeting. And so in terms of the neurology, it's quite hard to measure. But there there are a couple of ways we can do this. So there is a, a group of researchers, uh, Akira O'Connor and Chris Moulin, who have done some really interesting work with fMRI, which is where you can see which parts of the brain are active when people are doing particular things. And they managed to create deja vu by reading people a list of words. I mean, I can try this on you, actually, if you like. So they, 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 <laughs> Go for they, it. <laughs> they, they, they read words like blanket, awake, snooze, nap, dream, doze, tired, bed. And when those words are read, they're asked to look for the letters S, L and E, and they can't see them. And then when they're in the scanner... One of the words they show them is sleep. 
Uh-huh. And immediately people will go, oh, hang on, that, that feels like it was on that list I was just looking at. But it, of course right. it wasn't. And they know it wasn't because this one does have the letters SLE and the other ones don't. So they're able to kind of create this conflict in, in the scanner. And they have shown that the sort of reality monitoring areas of the brain in the frontal lobes are active when, when that moment happens. So that's that's been quite insightful. And then the the other way to understand it neurologically, of course, is to look at where it is pathological. So to look at the people with amnesia and epilepsy and look at which areas of the brain are being disrupted. So that kind of infers the temporal lobes. So what we know is that those areas in the temporal lobes and the frontal lobes must be important in this experience because both the kind of neuropsychology and the brain mm. imaging mm. seems to suggest that. Let's now get into the the sort of different schools of thought as to why. What is the dual processing theory and how does it relate to deja vu? So the idea that basically we are processing parts of our environment at a different pace and that, for example, one hemisphere is is actually recorded the information ahead of the other one, which was, is why it's almost like a race to it getting to the mm, brain. Yeah. And in, 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 in this race, one side of the brain wins and uh, so you think, oh, that's it. I definitely remember this. But actually, you've only you're still only actually experiencing it in the other side of the brain. So it's a kind of, I mean, this has been very much disproven now. But this idea was quite common for quite a long time. So the idea that actually we we just can't, you know, different areas of our brain can't keep up with each other essentially. So, Catherine, what are the competing theories, the schools of thought as to why this happens and which school, as it were, do you subscribe to? Yeah, it's a good question. So there are lots of very old theories, which I think are interesting and have informed the more modern theories. Hmm. So there are kind of theories that it's just like a sort of false memory, like a dream almost. And of course, paranormal psychology used to believe that it was a premonition and that somehow we were actually we'd had this premonition that we were we were reaching but then then there were kind of more neurological explanations around the the speed at which we processed information so the idea that essentially there's a bit of a race and that one side of the brain or one sort of mechanism within the brain was managing to to kind of process the information quicker so we we do a situation we walk into we walk into a, a room and part of our brain very quickly processes it. And then the other part is still processing it. But half of our brain says, oh, no, no, we, we've already seen this. We've been here before. <laughs> I've and already recorded that bit. As I've already were. recorded that bit. Yeah. So and that that kind of made a lot of sense, but it doesn't really fit with what we know of the experimental and neurological literature. So and there is also this kind of idea that there's almost a short circuit so that it, um, information is going Normally, we expect information to kind of go into our consciousness, sit there for a bit, and then we record it into our sort of longer term memory. Uh-huh. And there is this idea that sometimes the what we're looking at could could have kind of short circuited that, gone straight into long term memory, which is why we have this unusual sort of feeling. But when we look at the kind of more modern theories, which I think is the the ones that kind of make much more sense to me and fit really well with the neurological side of things. There's kind of four theories, but they all basically work on the same principle. And what they work on is the principle that when we recognize something, there are two parts to that feeling. So there is the actual sort of 
mapping on of what we're seeing to something that has happened in our past. And then there is mm. a very sort of subjective feeling of familiarity. Oh, this feels familiar. And that's part of our normal remembering system. And it's really helpful because we kind of need that emotional sense of familiarity as well as just the intellectual knowledge that we've seen something before. And what's, what, what seems to happen in deja vu is that those two things become disconnected so that we can sometimes have the sense of familiarity without the actual recollection. So there isn't the intellectual knowledge. And in fact, that clashes. We, we haven't been here before. We haven't seen it. But the familiarity button in your head has gone off and gone, oh, mm. this feels familiar. And it may be that that happens through a kind of neural misfiring, which is, of course, what we see in things like amnesia and temporal lobe epilepsy, where actually the familiarity part of our brain has fired almost accidentally like a little glitch. And then very quickly, we, we would, in normal situations, we would correct that and say, no, 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 we haven't been here before. But also th there are other things that, that can trigger it, like if a scene is really, really familiar to us or some elements of what we're experiencing map onto something that's happened before, that can kind of trigger the familiarity feeling for a good reason. You know, it does feel familiar, but yeah. very quickly, again, this correction mechanism kicks in. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. How does it affect people who have, I guess, a less reliable mental state, if you know what I mean? So people who suffer from, you know, schizophrenia and such disorders, who have learned to trust their brain and their recollection not as uh, solidly as the rest of us do. Does that interact with other neurological conditions? Yes, yeah, so I think I think it can be very disconcerting. And, and the example you choose there, schizophrenia, is particularly interesting because the area of the brain that I was talking about earlier, this reality monitoring part of the brain, which is really, really important in mm. terms of the deja vu experience, we know that that is not functioning as well in people who are experiencing a psychotic episode. And so that reality monitoring, which is absolutely the thing that makes us go, no, I haven't been here before, I haven't experienced that before. We know that that's disrupted in people who are experiencing a sort of psychotic moment. So it's much more likely to be disconcerting to those people. And it it would we would expect neurologically that it be, might might be more likely to happen as well. You spoke a little bit earlier about the sort of early explanations of this, mm. as you know, with the more spiritual mm. reasons being attributed to it. One of them being clairvoyance. Have we reached a scientific stage where we can exclude that completely? In my opinion, absolutely yes. Um, mm -hmm. Although what, it, what I think is interesting is that the brain is a really, really good prediction machine. So yeah. there, is, there is an element in which we are very, very good at kind of 
predicting what's going to come next. And there's a huge literature on on why that's relevant and why it's important. So the only sort of element scientifically where I think this could still have some importance is is simply that we are continually predicting what is going to happen next. And mm. so if we can predict what happens comes next in, in, in a very kind of cognitive, normal way, then when that thing happens, we kind of go, oh, I knew this was going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's all sorts of literature around around why that, that might happen. And so largely, I would say it's it's, you know, been debunked. But absolutely, our brains are fantastic prediction machines. And, and, and we, it, yeah, as I say, it, it's relevant to absolutely everything we do. I, I like that. I, that. It's a really elegant reconciliation of the, the two things to say mm. that w- effectively what, what science is leading us towards is that we are all a tiny bit clairvoyant. Yes, <laughs> effectively. absolutely. Our brain is working all the time to think out what happens next. And that's an evolutionary trait that has helped us survive. Absolutely, yeah. My mother is in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's. Mm. I know you also have a a parent with dementia. Mm. Um, So the process of memory formation and recall has been a a sort of mini obsession Mm. um, for some years. Other wider implications or applications to the study of these particular ways of neurons misfiring, as it were, that can have wider usefulness, as it were? Yeah, absolutely. I I think the memory system is really complex. And I mean, I've been studying it for 30 years now, and I still feel like that every day I find more questions than I find answers. But every single either function or dysfunction of the memory system or aberration, which is really what deja vu is, it's it's a temporary aberration of our memory system. And every mm. single one of those is really, really important in terms of us understanding which parts of the brain are involved, what's the process. So, for example, the idea that familiarity, that sense of familiarity is different mm. from the intellectual knowledge that you have experienced something before is really, really important. It's a really important understanding of how the memory system works because partly it helps us know that those reside in different parts of the brain. And I think for dementia, that can be really incredibly important because I I certainly know in terms of what I see clinically and with my mum, that that feeling of familiarity is absolutely can be there, even when all of the sort of conscious recollective experience has gone. So so the feeling that you can have that this feels familiar and this feels comfortable to me can be something that can really make a difference to someone's quality of life and their well-being. So understanding that those systems are separate is partly contributed to by our study both of normal deja vu and pathological deja vu. So that's just an example. But, mm. you know, many parts of ev- every time something different happens to the memory system, it, it can be informative, I think. It's an extraordinarily validating thing to hear because it's something that certainly I and I think a lot of people that I speak to with experience of caring for someone with dementia, they have an instinctive understanding that even when the person could not name who someone is, mm. they they have a, a, a deeper reaction to that person Mm. as familiar or not, as friend or foe, 
actually. Mm. You know, the, the people that the people that my mother really disliked <laughs> before mm. she had Alzheimer's, she still has quite yeah. a grumpy reaction to them, even though she doesn't <laughs> know who they are, as it were. Yeah. And so that that's that's a really interesting thing to hear. When next do you think with this field? I mean, what what is happening in your field of study that really excites you right now? I've heard a lot about virtual reality mapping techniques mm. and stuff like that. Can you tell us a little bit about? Yeah, so I think I think in terms of deja vu, the the real trick in a sense or the really important thing is trying to find ways that we can we can actually create that sensation in somebody and so yeah there's there's been a group in California who've done really interesting work with virtual reality so what they've done is they've created exactly the same setup so it might be a particular sort of set of, sort of bushes set around a garden trees and things and people have to kind of go into the virtual reality system and walk around this this kind of area hmm. um, but then what they do is they they then provide an identical sort of layout but with completely different things so identical layout but with for example in a junkyard so, right, so right. actually they've mapped one onto the other and it, it looks completely different place but because the layout is identical when people go into it and they're asked to walk a particular route through it they kind of go hang on this feels really familiar and they'll get hmm temporarily that sense of deja vu and then they go well it can't be because this is a junkyard and I haven't done this and and so so those kind of virtual reality things where we can maybe sort of play with the sense of of familiarity play with yes there are some aspects of this that, that overlap with something you've done before because that overlap is so key to it I think I think the overlap between your current situation and something that's happened before is key to making that happen me and my husband got into the back of somebody's car yesterday and it's funny enough it's the same car that we had but we were sitting in the back and, <laughs> and, and as we got in he said oh that's that's really weird I feel like I feel like I've done this before but what has happened is he's got into the back of another car before and he knows this car really well and those two things are me sort of temporarily yeah. col collided to make him go oh hang on I've done oh no I can't have done so yeah so I think I think what's exciting is is trying to work out ways that we can make that happen for people and then measure what's happening in their brain. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Catherine Loveday, thank you so much for your time and for your patience and your absolute clarity. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, there's a new Bunker Pod every day, the full panel on Tuesdays, your Start the Week Bulletin on Mondays, your Culture Supplement on Saturdays, and daily interviews every other day. So don't forget to subscribe. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. In 400 AD, St. Augustine first described the phenomenon of falsae memoriae, or false memory. He attributed this to what he termed deceitful spirits. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producers were Alina Ganatra, Jacob Archbold, Jana Sofronievich, and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.